And I think with that, let's, let's move into the teaching time this morning. I am super excited because Amanda and I are going to tag team preach. And it's really not a tag team. She's going to do 90% of the sharing today. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm honored to, to be up here with you. We've been doing a series called City of Angels. And by the way, are you seeing angels everywhere you look in the Bible right now? Are, are you reading the Bible? <laughs> If you're reading the Bible regularly, I am seeing angels everywhere. It's like when you go shopping for a car and then you see that car. Uh, probably six out of my seven days of Bible reading last week, I saw angels in the passages. They're everywhere. And we've been talking about how angels have different roles and functions, and we're drawing some insights from angel stories that we want to absorb into the culture of our church. Well, we've come to a place today where we want to shift the focus to angels as worshipers. So it kind of makes sense. It's, I guess it's a little bit typical to have the worship pastor talk about the worship part. But, but really, Amanda has an incredible message to share today. And um, I am so happy that we have Amanda and Ben Howard as part of our church. They are, are so special. We, we met Amanda before you guys were married. I think you were dating, but mm -hmm. it was before yep. uh, we were married. Uh, you were referred to our church. We, we had uh, a worship leader that was in transition, um, moved away from the church, and uh, he recommended you to us. And Isaiah and I were so happy mm -hmm. that he did that. And you've been just amazing. And then we had class together at APU in a couple of classes. And um, I got to officiate Amanda's wedding. Let's start with that, that wedding picture. They had a magical, special, special service. And when two young people um, love Jesus with all their hearts and are learning to serve each other and live for a great cause, it's, it's really amazing. And it was super special. I'm sure your family's watching. So I do want to say to your dad that, that um, we know how amazing your daughter is. We probably don't know the fullness, but we love her and we hopefully are, are a great church for her as long as we get to have her and Ben. But um, can, can I show you her uh, just adorable, amazing little baby girl Amanda picture? <laughs> Is there oh anything gosh. you want to say about that? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I was in kindergarten. She told me it yeah. was her Dora the Explorer stage. Yep. But doesn't she look so kind? She looks so sweet. <laughs> But, um, oh but I'm so happy to have you move from behind the, the guitar to yeah. up here. And before we dive into this, you know, we, we, everybody feels like they know you because we see you every week. Mm -hmm. um, but did, did you, have you always been a Christian? Did you grow up in church? How did you come mm -hmm. to faith? It's a great question. Yeah, so I, when I was little, up until, gosh, probably about 10 or 11 years old, my dad was an associate pastor at a church. And so I, I grew up going to church and grew up believing in Jesus. But I, I would say it really became real to me um, when I was probably about 14. And I, that was when I really would say that was kind of the moment that it, that it shifted where I started to take my faith seriously and started to pursue the Lord on my own rather than just my parents' faith. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Did you... Were you inspired by worship leaders, or how did a passion for leading worship evolve? Yeah, I was. Uh, I had the blessing of being part of a church that had a great uh, youth ministry and great youth worship ministry. I was part of a, a team that uh, that had songwriting sessions, and we wrote songs for our ministry. And so, just I think being in that community really just kind of lit a fire in my soul for for worship and for the presence of God and just being able to 
blend those two together. So that's awesome. Yeah. Well, in addition to her job, because her job is worship pastor, director of worship arts at our church, but on her own, she's asked if she can, and she's volunteered to work with our student ministry. And I, are you forming a worship ministry with the students? We are. Yeah, we yeah. have a little worship team. We've done it the last month or so. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's been oh, awesome. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, that's of course. so great. Well, if you all have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Revelation chapter 4. So our series has been called City of Angels, and the specific title, if you're a note taker, the specific title of today's installment is God is Holy and That Changes Everything. God is Holy and That Changes Everything. And I'll introduce the passage in Revelation 4, and then Amanda, you take it away. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Is, a, is an incredible moment in the life of the Apostle John, who had been exiled to the island of Patmos for his faith in Christ. Um, church tradition tells us that under Roman persecution, they tried to execute John by boiling him in oil, and he survived, and then was exiled to this island. And we, we think he was a, a very old man, probably in his 80s, um, when this occurred. So older guy, um, been through it, been uh, physically assaulted and harmed. He's on exi in exile. And in chapter four of verse one of his book, it says, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, and if you're reading the, 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 the paper Bible today, you see these are the red words of Jesus. So the voice that he heard like a trumpet, these are the words of Jesus saying, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And that could be a sermon all by itself. Come up here and I will show you some things. There are some things in our lives that cannot be seen until we ascend to a bigger, more heavenly-minded perspective. There are some things that can't be unveiled and, and made clear to us until we rise in worship in the presence of God. And then it says, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed, dressed in white, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal." In the center around the throne were four living creatures. These are the angelic creatures that we don't, we don't have a lot of backstory on them, but there were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes. In front, in the back, the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What a rich passage that is. Um, 
you know, whenever I get into a rut in my worship life or whenever I get discouraged as a worship leader, this is actually the passage I go to. The book of Revelation is filled with a lot of language uh, that might sound really strange or odd to us, um, but it's actually the reason I love, I love these passages is that this kind of language, it lifts my eyes and helps me see God from a different perspective. And uh, it, it reminds me of his majesty and his glory and his beauty. And so with that in mind, I want to read that last verse again, verse eight. And just my, my translation, it says, in the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. I don't know about you, but um, I can get my mind around a creature that has six wings. That's not too far-fetched, right? Um, but full of eyes all around and within, under the wings, everywhere. Um, that's pretty strange and that's pretty weird. I don't know how that works. I'm only familiar with these two. But um, when we read passages like this, we have to remember that we're not necessarily reading them literally. Have you ever had a dream and tried to explain it to somebody? The other week I had, I had just woken up and I was talking to Ben and I was like, babe, like, I just had this dream. And we were in our apartment, but, but somehow it, it didn't really look like our apartment, but somehow I knew, it, I knew it was there. And I saw my friend Christina, but her face was just kind of like a blurry blob. But again, some, somehow I knew it was her. Um, this passage is kind of like that. John has a vision and he's trying his best to explain all that he experienced and all that he saw. And another thing to remember that the book of Revelation um, is what scholars call apocalyptic or, or prophetic literature. And so it's filled with lots of visions like this. Um, and it's filled with poetry and symbolism and all sorts of things like that. And it just means that we need to read it a little bit differently than we would read uh, books like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so when we read things like full of eyes all around and within, we need to ask, what might John be saying? What might he be trying to communicate to us through this? And so when Chris and I were talking, we were, we were, what we think he's getting at is that these creatures are ever seeing. They have endless eyesight. They're not missing an angle in this room. They're not missing a beat about what is happening in the throne room of God. There's a lot going on here too. They, they could be focused on, on the beautiful crowns on the elder's head. I'm sure they were awesome to look at. Um, they could be mesmerized by the lightning and the thunder and the fire and the rainbow all happening at once. And yet, if we go a little bit farther in the verse, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so in the midst of this scene, they could be responding to a million other things, and yet their eyes are fixed on God. He's captivating, and all they can say is, holy, holy, holy. And so I want us to notice what they're not saying. They're not saying, loving, loving, loving is the Lord. They're not saying, powerful, powerful, powerful. They're not even saying, great, great, great. Even though all those things are true about God, it begs the question, why are they singing holy? Why is the endless refrain of heaven, holy, holy, holy? Why is the song that never stops, holy, holy, holy? And so if you've been coming to church for a while, you've probably heard that word a lot, holy. You've probably sung songs about it. 
probably every week, and uh, there's a reason why. A.W. Tozer, who is an amazing preacher, author, he says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think he's right. And I think that this passage is telling us that holy needs to be at the top of our list. And so, I'd love to just dive into what holy means. Um, In Hebrew and Greek, the word for holy, it means sacred or set apart, and even the root word means to separate. And throughout scripture, we see things or people or places or even certain days of the week called holy. And it means that that thing is set apart for God. Even like the elders were praying last night, they were praying over the ground that this would be dedicated unto the Lord. They were praying that this would be holy ground. But when we're, talking about, when we're talking about God, it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. It doesn't mean that God is somehow consecrating himself unto himself. That doesn't quite make sense. But what it means is that God is set apart from everything else in existence. He is transcendent over all things. It means he is beyond the ordinary. He is totally unique and special. There's another thing that scholars often talk about when when teaching about God's holiness. And so the first is that he is transcendent, which is what we just talked about. And then second is that he is morally perfect in all his ways. Morally perfect. And that is such good news for us. There's a quote that I love uh, from Jackie Hill Perry in her new book. And she says this, if God is holy, he can't sin. And if God can't sin, he can't sin against me. And if God can't sin against me, doesn't that make him the most trustworthy person, trustworthy being there has ever been? So if God is holy, he can't sin. If God can't sin, it is impossible for God to sin against you. And if he can't sin against you, that does make him the most trustworthy being there has ever been and ever will be. And so just like the title, just like Chris shared, God is holy and that does change everything. It changes our attention, it lifts our eyes to see him clearly, it changes our relationship with him, it leads us into a place of trust, and it changes us from the inside out. When we see that God is holy, it changes how we see ourselves and how we see the world, and that's kind of where we're going to dive into a little bit deeper today, how God's holiness changes us. So good. I love when you said that's good news. People don't usually think of God's holiness as good news because we usually think of holiness as holier than thouness or holiness meaning he's, you know, he's good, we're bad, we fall short. That's usually our framework, but what an amazing quote. I just want to repeat it so that we catch it. If God is holy, God cannot sin. If God cannot sin, God cannot sin against me or you. And if God cannot sin against you, it makes him the most trustworthy of all beings. This is, a, this is such an important topic because we all have a little bit of Greek mythology wrapped up in how we view the world and how we view God. Um, a lot of our uh, philosophical schools of thought came from ancient Greek culture. And if you remember from your school days in your study of Greek mythology, the, the pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses were gods that were very much like humans. Back in that day, humans made gods in the image of humans. The, the gods were more human than humans. And it's a very different story than the Christian message where, yes, God stepped into human history to rescue humanity, but God is not like humans. 
and, and sometimes we don't even realize that we tend to recreate God in our own image. And it's so important to do exactly what the passage says is come up to a different perspective and let God define God. And when we let God define God, we see that God is holy. And you're doing an amazing job defining what holy is. When it's dealing with us, it means we're his. If you have your uh, a regular Bible, if you look at the spine or the front, it probably says holy Bible. Uh, sometimes you've heard of the country of Israel referred to as the holy land. Or sometimes the nation of Israel has been called God's holy people. And what does holy Bible, holy land, and holy people have in common? That they belong to God. So we have God's book, we have God's land and God's people. So we have holy Bible, holy land, holy people, and holy us belonging to God. But then as applied to God, the holiness um, is, is absolute transcendence. And um, th th there's an amazing thing that happens when we experience this holiness of God. It begins to transform us from the inside out. So we'll come back to Revelation, but let's scoot backwards to Isaiah 6 for just a second. Um, in Isaiah 6, chapter 1, the prophet Isaiah encounters the holiness of God, and it radically reorients his world. And so we'll look at this passage for a moment. In Isaiah 6, verse 1... <clears throat> It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Uh, the Bible doesn't really outline the full hierarchy of angels. When you, when you do angelology, the study of angels, we don't know exactly what these beings were. Uh, the, the Bible talks about cherubim. And, and when we think of a cherub, you usually think of a chubby little rosy-cheeked baby gazing wistfully into the sky. But the, the cherubim, were that, that was the angel that God stationed to guard the way to the tree of life in Genesis. When Moses created the tabernacle, they, they built a, a, a picture and a sculpture of, of cherubim with their wings extended, covering the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. So we have cherubim. We have these seraphim that seem to be these worshiping angels. We have angels. We have archangels. Revelation talks about a strong angel. Uh, the Bible doesn't use the term guardian angel. That's more of a cultural kind of mythology about angels. But the Bible does suggest that there are angels whose function is to minister to and serve God's people. So we, we don't go too deep into that because the Bible doesn't tell us a lot, but it tells us enough to know that that's, that's quite possibly a thing. And then, of course, we have fallen angels. We have demonic spirits. But in this passage, we see these creatures that look a lot like your creatures from Revelation. Yeah, so good. So let's keep reading in verse 3. These seraphim are calling out to... An calling out to one another, and as we keep reading, we'll start to see how the holiness of God changes us from the inside out and how it did that for Isaiah. So verse three. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. Mm. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. 
And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, un- of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so we see in this passage that this vision, this revelation of God's holiness, changed something in him. He sees God, and then immediately he starts to see himself clearly. He says, I am, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And notice again what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, I realize it now because somebody told me that I'm unclean. And it doesn't say, I realize it now because an angel came and condemned me. Nobody told him, wow, Isaiah, you need to shape up. You are, you are doing a bad job. It says, for my eyes have seen the king. Just by being in proximity to the Holy One, Isaiah started to see what was inside of himself. He saw that he was not holy, holy, holy. His sins came out of hiding into the light of God's presence, and he repented. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever encountered a moment in God's presence so strong that your heart was just moved to repentance? Maybe it was a moment in worship, and you're singing, and then all of a sudden you start thinking about, man, I, I was rude to my coworker yesterday. Or maybe you're in a moment of prayer, and, and you start to feel compelled to apologize to your spouse for, for how, you, how you reacted to something they said. Maybe you were just reading scripture, reading about the life of Jesus, and you realize how impatient you've been lately. I know that's happened to me before plenty and plenty of times, and that's what happened with Isaiah here. He had that moment when he saw the Lord in his holiness and his sins were just lifted up out of the depths of his heart and it goes to show that a moment in his presence can change everything. A moment when we see who God is can change everything about us and everything inside us. It might not change everything on the outside, it might not change every circumstance, but it will change our hearts and it will change how we see things. So good. Are you guys cold? Yes. The, the person next to you probably wants to cuddle, so, so feel free. So what, what Amanda just described is an absolute gift. This is, this is, this is a, a humongous point to catch. When we come into God's presence, we automatically and naturally begin to change. I want you to think about this. Have you experienced that? When she described this dynamic, how many of you have experienced that? That when you began to worship or read or pray, nobody had to come in and point out your issues. You started to see it. You were designed in your makeup as a human being. You were designed to come back into order, back into the fullness of who you're supposed to be when you encounter God. Sometimes people, uh, they tear up and they get kind of weepy when they feel God's presence. Does that ever happen to you? It's a weird phenomenon. It doesn't mean you're sad. It doesn't mean you're overwhelmed with happiness. There's something in us that seems to respond to the tangible nearness of God. And often we cry. And when we come into God's presence, we change. That is a gift. Could you imagine, I love the phrase you use, that his sins came out of hiding. Could you imagine if Isaiah's sins stayed in hiding? Because if you know this passage, you know that what's coming is God is about to commission him as a prophet. But could you imagine if, if, if his sins stayed there? 
and he tries to be a prophet with these unclean lips. We're living in a day and age when a lot of people's sins are staying in hiding until they're exposed before the whole world. And, and what a gift to this, this young prophet for God to say, son, I'm going to show you my glory. And when I do, it's going to set something free inside you so that I can send you and commission you. It's beautiful. That's so good. That's so good. Let's keep on reading. In verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. I love that immediately after Isaiah repented, he was cleansed and forgiven. In this tender and weighty moment where Isaiah is probably feeling overwhelmed, probably freaked out about all the things he's seeing, an angel comes to him and speaks to the shame that sin often brings. Reminds me of Pastor Don's message from the other week that angels are messengers of good news. And when you come face to face with a sin that's come to their service, I don't know if there's anything more powerful than having, than having someone look you in the eyes and saying, you're not guilty anymore. You're free. You are fully forgiven. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to atone for what you've done. God has taken care of it. What better news is that? God's holiness helps us see that he's done it all. He's done everything to bring us into the light and out of the darkness, and that's just such good news. Let me clarify just a quick objection that some people have when we talk about forgiveness. So it's a beautiful passage. Isaiah sees that he's unclean, and then all of a sudden he admits it, and now he's clean, and he's forgiven. Sometimes people object to this idea of God forgiving us so easily because we feel like that lets people off the hook. So I can harm you, but then I can ask God to forgive me, and suddenly I'm clean. And that leaves you feeling like, well, what about some justice? Um, what about making things right? And I just want to remind you, God, God's holiness in, envelops the idea of his all lovingness and his all justice. Every sin contains inside itself its own judgment. So first of all, nobody ever gets let off the hook because all of our errors and our shortcomings harm us. There is an inbuilt consequence to our sins, first of all. Second of all, there's a difference between being forgiven and then needing to make amends. The fact that God has made me clean is step one. I must be made clean. The human soul was not made to live and labor under the weight of our failures and our sins. We were made to be clean. So I have to get right with God. But after getting right with God, I have to get right with you. And I have to make amends. It's interesting, um, in Acts chapter 9, when Ananias was told to reach out to, to Saul, who had been persecuting the church and he was gonna become the apostle Paul. Ananias didn't wanna reach out to him. It's so fascinating what God said to him. He said, Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. And, and, and so God even realized he's gonna to have to pay for his stuff and he's gonna pay for it through suffering for the gospel. He's forgiven, he's clean, he's free. But I, I just want to insert that, that, that if someone has harmed you or wronged you, God holds people accountable. There will be justice and there is forgiveness for all of us. And, and if, if we're needing uh, to be made right with God, right after that, we may need to make something right with other people. But this is just a, a beautiful scene. Um, we'll keep going here. Yeah, so good. Verse eight. 
He says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. And he, God gives Isaiah a message to deliver to his people. And um, this is just one verse, but I don't want us to miss the power of it. In this passage, in a matter of moments, Isaiah goes from sinner to saved and set free to a freshly commissioned prophet of God. And it all started with a revelation of God being holy, holy, holy. And that's the thing that kick-started all of this. That was the first domino when Isaiah saw God for who he is. God is holy and that does change us. When we see God rightly, it's for his glory, but don't forget that it's also for our good. He helps us see who we really are and who he's calling us to be. That's per- perfect. So God's freedom, the freedom that he brings into our life is for that. It's to help us be what we have been called to be. Freedom is another term that we often misuse or don't understand, especially young people. Um, have you ever heard a young teenager demanding their freedom? I just want my freedom. Get off my back. When, when, when they're demanding their freedom, what are they usually asking freedom to do? Are they usually saying, I want my freedom. I want to be more honest. Just give me my freedom so I can show more integrity than, than you're asking of me. We usually view freedom as give me the space to be bad. But that's not what biblical freedom is. Biblical freedom is I am free to soar. I'm free to be the greatest version of who God created me to be. So God's holiness isn't you're bad because you don't measure up. It's let me touch your lips with the coal from the altar or whatever the area is so you can be more than. We humans, we tend to have this kind of little infatuation with the minimum standard. How much can I get away with before I'm too bad? That is never how we were designed to live. By the way, have you ever read the Ten Commandments? low standard for human living. Don't murder people. Quit lying about your neighbor. Those aren't some big lofty standard. That's the bare minimum to not be a barbarian. God is calling us to greatness. And that greatness looks like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul explains to us how when we get into his presence, we're transformed into the image and the likeness of Christ. I want to read a quick quote, and then I'll turn it back to you. There was a a book written in 1739 by a fellow named Henry Skugel. This book is called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. This was a book that, that rocked George Whitfield's world before he became one of the the, the leaders in um, revivals in America's history. And it's, it's a fantastic little book, but he talked about this idea that we get into the presence of holiness and we begin to change. And he highlights the interesting observation that we become what we adore. We begin to look like our greatest loves. I, I took a picture of, oh, I shouldn't be saying this, but Jessica's not here this morning, so I can, I can say this. Um, <laughs> I, took a, I did a little stalkery photo of David and Karen fight last Sunday. They were walking up to Hope, and they were so, uh, they were so sweet and special. I took a picture, and I went home, and I said, Jess, that's going to be us. And, but they just, you can tell they've just, their life has just slipped into agreement and love for each other. That always happens when we adore something. Um, Skugel writes, the true way to improve and ennoble our souls is by fixing our love on the divine perfections of God, that we may have them always before us 
and then derive an impression of them on ourselves. And then he quotes 2 Corinthians 3.18, so that beholding with open face as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we may be changed into the same image from glory to glory. And then he says, hence we may see how easily lovers and friends slide into the imitation of the persons whom they affect. And how even before they are aware, they begin to resemble them in both their appearance and in their gesture and personality. I love that. So true. Um, If we go back to the passage in Revelation, we see another example of what turning to the Lord does. Uh, When we see the holiness of God, we not only see ourselves and and God begins to change us, but we also start to hear a new song. Mm. If you go back to verse nine, it says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Um, And I'll, I'll keep reading through verse 10. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, Lord, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things by your will they existed and were created. And so um, I just want to pause there for a second. This is a powerful moment of worship. A lot of times we can get intimidated by the book of Revelation because of all the visions and all the, all the strange things to us. But, but sometimes the most powerful way to read this book is not to try and figure out the end of the world. Rather, it's to read it as a book of worship. It's to read it for these moments of worship. You can have a powerful prayer time just by reading through these songs that they're singing. And also in this passage, we start to see something really powerful in their progression and how they worship. So the the living creatures, remember, they're declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And now, as the elders join in, the the song starts to shift to worthy. Holy is who God is, but worthy is my response. Holy is the starting place of our worship, but worthy is what comes out when we realize who God is. We can't get to worthy, worthy, worthy until we see holy, holy, holy. And as we keep reading, we'll see why God's worthiness is just as important. So go with me to chapter five, verse two. And it says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found to be worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and open its seven seals. So a quick background on the scroll. Scholars think this could represent something like a title deed to the earth. And basically the idea is that the scroll contains God's purposes for history. And and the seals are the things that are preventing it from being disclosed and worked out. So hearing that the lion of Judah Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. It means that everything's gonna be okay in the end. It's a message of hope, that God will have his way on the earth. And so once we see his worthy, 
We don't have to weep anymore. It restores our faith that he can deliver us and he can heal us and he can redeem us. So if we keep on reading, verse eight says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And so, do you see this progression of worship happening here? If we keep on going, um, in verse 11 it says, And then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then in verse 13, it says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So there's this crescendo of worship happening. Remember, it starts with the creatures singing holy. Then the elders start to join in singing worthy. And then the angels join in. And now we have all of creation joining in on the song. It's just such a beautiful picture of what worship does. It, It expands, it multiplies. And um, when he says that it, it goes to every creature on the earth, under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, um, that includes us right. here and now at Hope City Church right. in Claremont, California. It includes the nations, our brothers and our sisters in China and Uganda and Turkey. And it includes a great cloud of witnesses, heroes of the faith and the ones that have gone before us. Even, even our loved ones who have passed away are part of that great cloud of witnesses. And so we see in this passage how worship is reverberating from heaven to earth. And it's bringing us into a reality that surpasses time and space. How beautiful and awe-inspiring is that? I love it. So we'll, we'll start landing the plane soon, but I hope you're catching what Amanda's sharing. She's, you have such a gentle, um, easy-to-listen-to style of communicating, and she's saying some really great things. Um, what she's saying with this last thought is that worship is a butterfly effect. If, if you enjoy little physics trivia, and there's that whole concept that a butterfly flapping its wings can trigger an avalanche or a tornado on another side of the, of the planet, that's what worship does. It started with these four living creatures, and it just reverberates through history and around the globe, and that happens in our lives too. So if we become worshipers, and so the whole point of our morning today is a calling to be this kind of a people. Uh, We want to be like the seraphim, that whether we're saying it out loud or not, there's a constant refrain, honoring God's holiness, worshiping. That creates something that reverberates through our lives and our families and all of our influence. That's so good. Um, There's just one quote that I want to share. Another A.W. Tozer quote. He's my favorite. Sorry. Um, But he says, practically every great deed done in the church of Christ, all the way back to the Apostle Paul, was done by people blazing with radiant worship of their God. And a survey of church history will prove that it was those who were yearning worshipers who became the great 
workers. And like you said, that's, that's our hope. That's, that's what we're moving towards, is to be a people of worship, to be people who, who are great workers for the kingdom of God. And so being a worshiper is a lot more than just singing for 30 minutes on a Sunday. Being a worshiper means you have a lifestyle of turning to the Lord in everything. Romans 12 tells us that our true worship is to be a living sacrifice, to let our entire life be touched by God, to let him lead us in all ways in how we think, how we act, how we speak, how we spend our time, how we spend our resources. And so we can worship at work, we can worship at home, we can worship when we're having fun, and we can worship in everything. And so we are going to be a worshiping church. We're gonna be people who are so in awe of so in awe of God that worship radiates from our lives. And so, just really quick, as, we, as we're kind of landing the plane, um, how do we become those kinds of people? So remember what Chris tagged in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, when one turns to God, we see him, and he transforms us. He makes us those kinds of people. He makes us into worshipers and the workers that we long to see in the world. And so that still kind of sounds kind of elusive. I just, I have three points because I'm a speaker now. And um, all the action words start with P. Um, and so our plan is to get in the presence of holiness. Um, and so the first plan to do that, we are going to pursue God. We are going to say yes to singing, yes to serving, yes to reading scripture, and yes to staying in community with one another. When we do those things faithfully, God shows up. He will meet us and reveal himself to us and he will change us from the inside out. How else are we gonna get in the presence of holiness? We're gonna pray without ceasing. When you're frustrated in traffic, talk to God. When you're overwhelmed at work, speak to him. When you're excited about the future, talk to God. In all things, invite him into your life. And when you turn to him, he will meet you and he will reveal himself, and he will change you from the inside out. And lastly, we are going to partner with the Holy Spirit. We're going to open ourselves up to the Spirit of God. We're going to ask him to restore our sight, to reveal where we have seen him wrongly, to help us see him clearly, and we're going to wait on him and take time to listen to what he might be speaking to us, and we're gonna go where he leads. And so we're gonna become a worshiping people by getting in the presence of holiness, by staying there, mm -hmm. and letting the Holy Spirit have his way in us. So good. And listen, this, this isn't extreme religious fervor. This is what you were created for. This is how you come to the greatest yeah. level of life so possible. Let me have the worship team rejoin us. Um, stay there. Um, with this being our last service under the tent, I know we're, we're going a little long in the service, but we still want to worship for a few minutes. We can't, we can't end a talk on worship and holy, holy, holy without joining in with that song. But as the worship team's getting set, go back to that Tozer quote and um, mention his part about hospitals and orphanages. And Sure. Yeah, so he talks about how the greatest hospitals have grown out of the hearts of worshiping men and how the best orphanages have come um, through the hearts of worshiping men and women. And today there are ministries in the world freeing children from sex trafficking. And there are building wells to give people clean water. And, and there are ministries building schools to give kids an education. And that all comes from a heart of worship. And so I think that's what he's getting at. And that's, that's what we want to be, 
that's that's people we want to be and and become. So good. Yeah. So good. So can uh, can somebody run and tell Cassandra we're going to take just a few more minutes out here? Why don't we stand? <laughs> And let's let our standing today be a yes, that we're affirming that that is us, that's who we'll be, that we will never deviate from that path of being a worshiping church.